Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr Liz Curran, who's an Associate Professor at Nottingham Trent University in the Law School. Her book is Better Law for a Better World, New Approaches to Law, Practice and Education, and it was published by Routledge in 2021. Dr Liz Curran, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. Such a pleasure to have you. Now, just before we get started into the substance of the book, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and also how you came to write Better Law for a Better World, New Approaches to Law, Practice and Education. Thanks, Jane. Um, So I've been working as a practitioner and a researcher as well as doing legal empowerment work and policy work. Um, My area of work and endeavour has always been particularly finding gaps, particularly uh, in relation to people who are poor or who experience some form of disadvantage and who are often excluded because of a lack of resources or because of compounding and complex problems. Um, I've always believed that having had the benefit of a free education, um, that it was important for me to use my privilege in order and, and, and expertise and experience in order to ensure that those who didn't have the same opportunities in life that I have had uh, were able to um, avail themselves of the protections and their human rights under the law. Uh, my work as a practitioner for over three decades, uh, mainly as a community lawyer, but I have also worked as a private lawyer and I've worked for legal aid as well. And in doing that work, um, I started as commercial law, so I saw a lot of people with a lot of money using the legal system and often using it um, at length. And then I experienced through initially volunteering at a community legal centre, but then deciding to pivot and work in poverty law mainly. I don't like that term, but just for one of a better one. I realised that some people just did not have the tools or the wherewithal to even identify they had a problem capable of a legal solution, let alone to use the law, to understand it, to have the confidence, the capacity, the capability or the resources Um, and if you like um, my experience of that was that people who have lots of legal problems don't know they have legal problems don't know they're capable of a solution and it leads to incredible stress and anxiety and so that has always led me to have a specific interest in access to justice as my research area and also that practitioner basis, I learned a lot because I spent 10 10 years working in the context of a a community health centre, which was the first community health centre in Australia at West Heidelberg, which was one of the poorest postcodes in Australia. And that emerged out of the the Ron Sackville poverty inquiry in the 70s. And I was very privileged to work there for 10 years, either in the role of a lecturer, supervising clinical lawyer with students, but having casework with clients, and then later as director of the legal service. And that was in a public health sector setting. And so I learned things about the social determinants of health and how... um, how the structural inequities often lead to um, people uh, not having the ability to avail themselves of the so-called protections the law offers them. Um, What led me to write the book was all of those things, but having been a researcher in Access to Justice for 30 years and started to look at what works well and why and what doesn't work and why not, uh, as part of my research methodology, I started to think that... um, I had done a lot of research with participants in many, many multiple projects and research endeavours, and I had a lot of data that I'd 
written in peer-reviewed journals about, but also I had a lot of data that didn't sort of fit in. And along the way, because I was doing the research and I'd started doing evaluation of um, effective programs, as well as this ongoing work as a practitioner, which shaped and informed and grounded my research, I started to actually uh, learn a lot about participatory ways of doing research, particularly from my Aboriginal partners and advisors and new ways of doing things. I learned a lot about um, client-centred practice and trauma-informed practice and I wanted to do something that brought everything that I knew together in a a context so that other people could uh, see different ways of doing things, understand what it's like to be on the receiving end because I think that lawyers often are so busy focused on the technical legal arguments and getting the client to do what they want that the actual client gets lost in the dialogue and the conversation. And I've always believed that a responsive legal system is a legal system that is properly tailored to diverse and different needs. And over time, the legal system has become more adversarial It requires a lot more money. There's a lot more legislation, which is hard to navigate and understand. And it's become uh, an end in itself rather than actually focusing on the purpose of the law and the rule of law in a democracy, which is that everybody should be equal before the law and be able to avail themselves of its protections and its adherence. And so that's what the book's about. um, And that's why I wrote it. It's such a rich book. I mean, and your depth of your experience and your practical experience really comes through. And I do want to talk about that. But I just want to first find out who is the target audience of your book? That's a really good question. Um, I think primarily uh, the audience is uh, practitioners and teachers of the law. And when I use the word practitioners, I incorporate in that the judiciary, uh, tribunal members, administrators of the legal system. Uh, it might be the person who takes the details from the person when they come to court for a family violence or a, a domestic abuse application. Um, it is the legal practitioner, the solicitor. Um, it is the practitioner also who may be working alongside or have interaction with the lawyer. So it may include doctors, nurses, social workers, counsellors, where they may need the law to help them support clients in need. Um, The other key audience, I guess, in the book is um, uh, the Higher Education Academy, uh, specifically legal educators. I write in the book quite a lot about my disappointment with the way often that law is taught. It is taught in the abstract, too theoretical. And I think that uh, a lot of people would disagree with this, I know, but I do think that the role of university, if it's going to offer law degrees, is to not only um, give people a theoretical doctrinal understanding, but also to give them a practical uh, understanding of the way that law uh, functions in context of other problems and I think that the law should be taught in a way that equips people for legal practice in that they need to know more about client interviewing, good client interviewing, bad client interviewing, empowerment of client, um, how to do policy and law reform work, uh, how to identify recurring and um, uh, systemic problems in their case law and to do something about it. So those other skills, but also the, the what I call the hard skills. A lot of people call them the soft skills. I think that's actually a misnomer. I think the hard skills are interpersonal skills, collaboration skills, um, ability to, I mean, one of the things that all the research tells us is that people don't know how to identify a legal problem. So the current model of lawyers is often that the clients have to firstly work out they have a legal problem and then find a way of, particularly in the UK where there's been so much austerity and cuts to civil legal aid, find a way of getting access to legal help and making a legal appointment. appointment. Um I think that the, the, the real challenge for a good lawyer, and I think that this flows from an understanding that they're taught through law school, is that um, that they are the 
skilled expert in the law and so it's not for them to expect the client to work out that they've got a legal problem it's actually for them to gather the information the narrative understand what's happened and then for them to then if you like overlay what the legal things are without the silos of contract law tort law and currently the way that law is taught it's taught in silos and so when people come out they often miss multiple legal problems because they haven't been trained to think holistically. So there's a whole lot of foundational things about the law degree and the way it's taught and the way it's structured. Um, It is improving, um, but it's still, I think, too siloed. And um, in my courses that I teach currently at Nottingham Trent University, I spend a lot of time um, making it fun, but also giving them a real flavour of what it's like to be a client. And so, that, like, for instance, in one class, they had to interview me, and I think they're all horrified and shocked when I suddenly reverted into being what, you know, an, a combination of different clients I've had with a personal injury. And and then they were surprised to find out that this particular client was their own age um, and were devastated to think about what that might mean if they had had a serious accident and weren't able to continue with their studies or their um, internships. So um, I think making it real, and that's what I wanted the book to do, but the other thing about the book that I've tried to do is to not only make it what is the research, what is the practice, what works well and why, what are some of the innovations, but then I spent in part two of the book a lot of time looking at the how to do it. So it's not just about situating the context, the nature of the issues that need to be sorted, some ideas about how to perhaps do things in an innovative, new and different way and exploring often models that have never been written up before because often a lot of innovative practice, Jane, is happening in in smaller legal centres and small communities and they don't have people who are running around doing peer-reviewed articles on their their programs. And so what I wanted to document from having done evaluative work is innovative approaches that have never been examined or explored before. And so I guess that brings in the academic audience as well to try and stimulate more dialogue between different professionals about how justice might enhance health and how justice might enhance the economic and the um, the cultural uh, aspect and how law and lawyers can learn also from the health and the other disciplines to improve the way they operate and the way they do things. So that's the audience. It's quite a broad audience. And the other thing I wanted to deliberately do in the book is I, and I said this because I had my launch in an independent bookshop in Melbourne in Australia, the Readings, uh, who were very supportive of the book. And I wanted to write it and had fabulous, fabulous editorial team. Um, I wanted to write it in a way that... Um, if someone walked into Reading's bookshop and they were interested in better law for a better world, that they could pick it up and they could understand and read it. So I wanted it to be completely accessible to any audience. The title for the book, Better Law for a Better World, is, which is something I've forgotten until you've prompted this, Jane, actually came from a family. I was staying in an Airbnb and the woman who was the host, a single mum with a couple of kids, and she came in to do a bit of cleaning uh, for the next in incoming guest and we got talking and I just was telling her that I was writing a book uh, which is why I was at the Airbnb this was in a coastal part of Victoria and she just said to me you need to write about making a better law for a better world and so the title of the book actually comes from her. Wow that's lovely that gave me goosebumps when you told that story um gosh so the next question I have, um, so you've sort of touched upon this, but the first part of your book is titled The Case for Change, The Need for Innovation in, in the Law, Teaching and Practice. I wanted to go a bit deeper into this and break it down a bit. Um, so you've sort of touched on a bit already the, um, the case for change and innovation um, in, sorry, in law, teaching and in practice. But I'm wondering how do the sort of failings in each of these areas of the justice system have implications for the rule of law? And then can you tell me a bit more about those implications? Yes. Well, there is a chapter in the book that actually looks specifically at this and it uses a series of case studies. It goes through a number of... <laughs> we just Australia's in the midst of a whole lot of royal commissions, as is the UK at the moment, but... Um, there are a whole lot of royal commissions that have highlighted failings um, in the justice system, in the way in which policing is done, 
in the lack of responsiveness and in the harm that it's caused. And also one of those royal commissions, or more than one, has also looked at the role of law in causing harm. Um, and, um, you know, like if you look at the institutional sexual abuse and the way, for instance, the Catholic Church in Australia and elsewhere, might I add, um, used um, case law to obfuscate obligations um, using technical legal arguments rather than actually a, a focus on the harm that they had caused and their duty of care to vulnerable um, uh, pe people, be they people with disabilities or be they that current inquiries or they be people in aged care or, but particularly in the Catholic Church, the way it used, um, uh, if you like, a structure as a defence to taking responsibility for what happened, uh, which one would think would be the normal rules of law in agency. Um, so how the church organised itself um, in a technical legal way was used as a defence, if you like, to call the Ellis defence in Australia, to protect it and protect people who protected others from taking accountability and responsibility. So in a way, the legal system allowed that to happen and now fortunately that law was um, was overruled um, the other um, uh, concern is that um, although we have a lot of human rights protections and legal protections the most vulnerable uh, in our society and their carers who are often so overwhelmed with actually this just living day to day um, do not know how to get protection and it takes a major Royal Commission with huge resources often from underfunded legal aid and uh, the equivalent in Australia of law centres in the UK's legal centres um, trying to to use their limited resources to give voice and give a narrative and mobilise these people. Now, having worked for these people for many, many years, they do not, I can tell you now, the harm that's caused and retelling and retelling their story, uh, which is something the legal system requires that they do. And we have example after example in the UK and in Australia and in New Zealand and in Canada uh, in that space of family violence, where, or not even family violence, but sexual assault, where the victim has so often had to tell their story, retell their story, and then find that it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, or that the police have decided not to pursue it. Now, in the UK at the moment, a classic example of that is the non-prosecution by police of police who have been found to have perpetrated family violence. Um, and so how can uh, individuals or victims um, seek the protection of the, that they have in the law theoretically if they know that the system isn't going to listen to them, if they know that investigations are not going to happen, if they know all these things and the research verifies it, there's something broken in the system and it needs to be fixed. So the adversarial system tends to be about winners and losers. It is a harmful process. It takes many, many, many years for uh, a case to come to court. And... People just think it's about money and cost. It's actually a traumatic process. The uncertainty, the lack of control, the, um, the instability that sitting there waiting for a court case or various phases of a court case and then finding out it's been adjourned or whatever. Then in Australia, if you happen to be in detention, um, uh, then, you know, you are actually imprisoned until that determination can be made. Then you have parliamentarians who, when you might have finally got a case precedent that supports that what was done to you was wrong, you have parliaments who will go and try and change the laws to override, be it a high court or a Supreme Court decision, so that they can then do what they want to do and the unaccountability of decision makers um, the robo-debt inquiry in Australia was where the Australian government used an unlawful law to take money from the poor many times that they weren't entitled to. 
um, by issuing debt notices through an algorithm that was flawed. Uh, the advice from the Royal Commission into robo-debt, it's not covered in the book because it's post the book, a robo-debt Royal Commission, but there are other commissions that are similar, but this one's more current, I guess, for your listeners. And the, the robo-debt Royal Commission has uncovered that everybody at every level of um, bureaucracy and um, ministerial levels were all told this was unlawful. And yet uh, it, it continued to operate a system that the, we now know led to people suiciding, um, led to people having heart attacks because they thought that they owed money that they never owed and they were poor, they were pensioners or they were on income support, which is how that... So while they were throwing their money around on fruitless, silly activities, they were targeting the poor. And that was that was administrators doing something unlawful and people, because they didn't have the wherewithal, having to live with it until, again, a law centre and a pro bono law firm and legal aid brought together a whole a range of cases and that led to a federal court decision. Uh, the resources, the energy, the cost... People who spoke out about this on the news and on uh, current affairs show were then had their personal files disclosed by the department in the media. That was designed to shut them up. So at every level, there was nothing that people felt they could do. And although in the end it's now led to this Royal Commission, the concern is, and this is what I say in the book about a range of Royal Commissions, Royal Commissions are really important for throwing the flashlight over things. But their recommendations require governments to operationalise them. And there are so many recommendations of so many royal commissions and statutory inquiries that sit and gather dust. And so, again, so and then we know that governments, when they feel under the heat, they call an inquiry knowing nothing is really going to happen. And so that's one of the things I raise in the book. There has to be better ways of doing things. And what I posit is that one of those things is to look at the law and the role of the law differently and to see the law as a tool of community, not something that community has to fit in and be tailored to. Um, there certainly needs to be frameworks and people need to follow certain you know, in fairness, and I, I believe in due process. But what I'm getting at is the system is so adversarial, so harmful, there has to be a better way of doing it. And in the book, I look at things like restorative practice. I look at the proper provision and funding of, um, of um, legal aid services. I look at the role of earlier intervention and prevention. I have a chapter on policy and law reform so that instead of waiting for these problems to get to their worst level, we can actually intervene earlier. And there are other alternatives to litigation, bulk negotiations flagged in the book, which is about actually when you find out there's a serious problem, taking all of these in a without prejudice basis and getting someone to actually respond to the harm that's being caused before it becomes a problem. So, yeah, so there's a lot that's wrong with the legal system. Um, I think that lawyers... Um, do a, a fine job, but a lot of lawyers are very much involved in, I'm a lawyer, I'm not here to make you feel comfortable, but how can you actually help a client if they don't feel safe enough to disclose? How can you give them the best possible legal advice if the way that you operate is hierarchical and you don't give them a chance to be involved in their own case? Because often the law is affecting their lives in multiple ways and it's actually about them, it's not about the lawyer. So I want to flip that. Um, that dynamic as well. So then based on your research and your experience, how, how do you suggest um, the community can be made more central to the legal system? Uh, I have a, a chapter in the book about community development um, and what I think is again goes back to the important role of lawyers as skilled in the art of fact-finding, persuasive argument. Um, at the moment, we know that legal aid services and lawyers are stretched. Um, so there's a chapter, as I said in the book, about community development, but there's also a chapter about professional development and how to do it. And what I think we need to go back to, if you like, um, um, 
mobilising uh, community, uh, there is a huge level of distrust in the legal system and in our politicians. There's been study after study to verify that. There is actually, as my research shows, there is a lot of reason for why people distrust the legal system and um, and the politicians. Um, and so the ability to enable community to take the power back and to give them opportunities to understand how they can use the law and how they can use things like peer-to-peer learning. So when they find out about their rights and how the law operates in a manner in which they understand and can utilise. Um, so it's not the methodology, and there's a lot in the book about community development approaches. It's the methodology. A lot of lawyers think if they go into a room and talk for 50 minutes, they can ask questions at the end. It, my model doesn't work like that. It's actually about going into a room and having a chat with the people in the room and finding out what the burning issues are for them, using scenarios, common scenarios that the community can identify with to actually use those so community get involved and they learn and the the, the, the act, they don't need to know about the rule section five of subsection three of two of the such and such. What they need to know is that, for instance, I did a lot of training in West Heidelberg on the human rights charter, which had just come in there. It's similar to the work that the British um, Institute of Human Rights did when the Human Rights Act came in in the UK. And what it is, is about going to them and saying, look, you know, it's not appropriate that you have inhumane living conditions and mould growing on your wall and that you take your babies to the children's hospital on a routine basis because of chronic asthma. Um, and mould, um, there are things that you can do and do you want to learn about that and how can we work together, what what sorts of things do you need to do and doing it in a way that is useful for them. Um, and then you build on that work so that they do peer-to-peer learning and then they can mobilise and the lawyer can give um, skills around how to mount a submission. So what the work that I do that I talk about in the book in West Heidelberg was I actually, there was an inquiry, the first inquiry in decades into housing. And it was deliberately done, I think, over Christmas so that everybody was on holiday. But we mobilised that group of residents that I was working with and doing the human rights training. They then learned skills in how to make a submission to a parliamentary inquiry. And I went along with them because they said they felt they couldn't do it on their own. They wanted to be there, but they wanted to speak. They couldn't. A lot of these people couldn't read or write, so they wanted to do an oral submission. And we actually got a private pro bono law firm that actually did transcripts of focus groups, de-identified them. But what happened was that formed the basis of an actual written submission. And the reason we did it by transcript was because a lot of them couldn't read and write. They couldn't write their own submission, which is why they were excluded. And we're talking about people with cognitive disabilities, other disabilities, as well as people who had fallen out of school when they were six because they were, you know, intergenerational, you know, removal. Um, And so they actually went to Parliament and it was really interesting because the chair of the committee was wanting me to talk on their behalf and I said, no, 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 we made our own submission with the health centre. We did a joint submission already. This is their time. I'm just here to support them. And, um, you know, if they want data or something like that, then that's when I'll I'll, I'll arc up. And they were really uncomfortable with that. And then, but, and it was really funny, the the members of the community wanted to take photos of them being there and and they were told that they couldn't take photos because they wanted to share it with the rest of the community. By the end of their oral submission to the parliamentary committee, um, initially they were all looking at their mobile phones and looking for messages you could have heard a pin drop. The phones were put away. They had they were sitting there with their mouths wide open as these people talked about their experience of living in public housing. And all of a sudden, at the end of it, the chairs rushing around trying to take photographs on for them so they could share it with you know the community. And they said it was the most um, sombre, um, grounding submission in all the years of par- hearing uh, submissions through Parliament. So the power of that. Now, again, then. Unfortunately, I then, not that long after that, I left that organisation. But then the next step would have been, if I'd stayed, to actually make 
the, the recommendations actually come to some sort of, you know, to hold um, ministers to account. They did hold a public meeting before I left with the minister and he was put on the spot because he denied stuff and then the secretary of the, the department was there and he actually had to admit to the minister that everything that the residents had said had happened, which was so unbelievable, that was actually correct. And so the minister was appalled. We used the media as well, so they did media training. Um, so that was that. So they learned not only about their legal rights, but they learned about how they could then make that happen. So I think more of that community mobilising, but what was key in that, just using that as a case study, what was key in that is actually working with their health and allied health professionals to build their competency around their ability to recognise um, how legal problems and how using the law could get help them uh, negotiate with public authorities. So similar to the training around the Human Rights Act, um, training around the obligations of um, public authorities, but also when you hit a brick wall, what do you then do? And rehearsing conversations, pretending that I was the housing authority and they were having the conversation with me and then giving them tips on how to actually then activate it further up, go to the supervisor, how to get them to... And often, um, sadly, because you work with bureaucrats, often if you just are a nuisance and won't, you know, like, won't let go of that bone, you will actually get them caving in and making a decision in your favour. So, but without knowing the law and knowing how it can be used. And I think more of that will start to build people's awareness, their capacity, their capability, their confidence, but also their faith and trust. It. Because what we saw was through that work, um, accountability, and that's what's lacking at the moment. And that's my problem with the Royal Commissions and the law and the way that court cases take so much time. They're exhausting. They're down, designed to waste a lot of money, repeat players in the legal system, like the banks, like real estate agents. They know how the system works. So they just wear people down. You have government departments telling individuals in the community not to even bother going to their tribunal hearing or to court because they'll lose anyway. And so they don't bother because that's the only authority figure in their lives. So they wouldn't lie. So they take it as a given. So there's a whole range of different factors that are at play. And so I think that that mobilisation, that empowerment can come. There's a chapter on empowerment in the book too. It can come from um, people, not as people say so often, knowledge is power. Um, so my next question um how do we then, and you write about this in the book, um, how do we shift the discourse to make um, the legal system and the people who work within the legal system, how do we make them more accountable? Um, I'm a big believer um, in if you move the hearts, the mind will follow. And I have experienced that in my, um, my work over 30 years working in this space. Um, even with members of Treasury and Finance, and even though you think that they're economic boffins and that they're only interested in the bottom line, if you can actually tell a story and you can tell it eloquently and with the evidence base, then what can happen is you shift the hearts and the minds follow. Data can lie, very unpopular um, thing that I'm going to say. I have seen statistics used by various people in any way possible to get the outcome or the results that they want. What happens, and this is why a lot of my research over many years, I do quantitative data, I collect the numbers, but I also do a lot of qualitative data about why do the numbers tell us this? So, for example, when I first started evaluating health justice partnerships in the first six months, it was that they had low client numbers lower than was expected. Referrals were much lower. And so that might have been seen in six months as if change can happen in six months of change in practice and change in behaviours. But anyway, if a service wasn't getting uh, massive amounts of referrals in six months, then it was an argument for a, you know, a bureaucrat to shut it down. So what I started doing was actually trying to discover why the referrals were low and why the numbers weren't as high as expected. 
And this was consistent with the work that was done by the previous Legal Services Research Centre in the UK, which I had a lot of time for. Sadly, it was disbanded in 2013. Um, but its researchers are sort of far flung. We have one, Nigel Barmer, who's now in Australia, running the research division of the Victoria Law Foundation. And we have the wonderful Pasco Pleasance at University College London. So they're spread around. They're still doing this sort of research. So that's at least heartening. But... Um, what I started to ask is why, and the answers were fairly obvious. What I said before, the professionals who were working alongside the justice weren't referring because they didn't yet trust the lawyers. And that lack of trust was because, you know, a lot of health professionals have been cross-examined by barristers in court. They don't trust lawyers or they thought the lawyers were going to sue them in professional negligence. Um, so there was a whole piece of work there about the trust of lawyers and the trust in the legal system that meant that I'm not going to hand over my vulnerable, disadvantaged client to someone who's going to strip them and ruin them and harm them. And that's been my experience of the legal system. So why would I hand over my client? That was one answer to that question. Then the next answer to the question was, even if you were going to reach this particular client, because they'd never reached, been reached before, they not only had one legal problem, they often had nine or ten going and cascading and intersecting at the same time, consistent with all the international research at the time as well. So what that little example shows you is that the, the statistics can lie just because there, there, there are reasons why. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to find the narrative that sits behind the statistics, the reasons why, the people's experience, the barriers for people, the impacts on their lives. Um, and then that allows us to have a, a richer tapestry or understanding of what is going on. And then when we have that information, then we can start to design services that are more responsive. So governments try, and this is one of the key problems, I think, in our public policy, Governments try and give knee-jerk, often simplistic solutions to complex problems. And that's blunt. And it means a waste of money. And it means it's going to be poorly targeted and it's not going to be responsive. My observation here in the UK, for example, is a lot more money is spent on high-level bureaucracy administering things Whereas in Australia, by contrast, taking the legal assistance sector as an example, that money is actually diverted into providing funding for generalist legal services who provide help to someone so that in one spot, so they don't have to go here, there and everywhere. There is a well-established research about referral fatigue. If people are referred more than three times, they just give up. So if we can actually understand different different complex client groups and the factors that the human responses, understand the human beings, okay, not the problem type or that allows government to get off the hook. Actually understanding what it's like to be a human in these situations, what it's like to be discriminated, what it's like to be discriminated and living in poor housing, what it's like to be discriminated against but living in poor housing and have an intellectual disability, what it's like to have all of those things and have a son with cancer. And those are the sorts of people we're talking about. And they don't have the wherewithal. So I think that we need to tell the stories and that's what's not being told and do it in it with using the evidence base. At the moment, the problem, for instance, in the UK is the lack of the evidence base. And there's a, there's, there needs to be more research in this space and it needs to be enough information to inform us as to what we need to do to change the way we work to make it actually serve the people. It's taxpayers' money. Let's use taxpayers' money to serve the people. And at the moment, I think we're spending so much money at the higher levels that we miss that point. And it's not about digitising courts and it's not about putting everybody into mediation pathways because that then silences the deeper systemic problem. It individualises it. It assumes that people... Um, so it's more complex and nuanced. And unless we understand human beings and the barriers and the things they confront, how can we design services that are client-centred and responsive?
And I think this is probably a good point to pick up on some of the models that you put forward. Um, you just talked about practice models that are more responsive to clients. So can you tell me about some of the models you put forward in your book? Mm, yes, um, there were a number. Um, mm. But one of the things before we go to that is I think that, and it, it follows in where I'm coming from, is we tend to, in a lot of our service models, have what we call a deficit model, which focuses on the deficiency of the individual. And often, that's all very well for a middle-class educated person to talk about the deficiencies of the individual. I think of care and protection cases with a social worker going in and saying, the young mother hasn't done the dishes on a Saturday morning. And I remember a very, very renowned um, head of a children's court saying in a care and protection application, well, I hope you never come to my house on a Saturday morning and see the dishes not done. So this sort of double standard. Um, I think we need to move from a deficit model, all the problems with people, to a strength-based approach, which actually looks at, I mean, I am in awe, I've done a lot of work in relation to finance, financial counsellors and consumer problems. I've got a number of published reports, which I talk about in the book too. I am in awe of people who get, you know, maybe live on 100 quid a week. They must be incredible at managing their finances. And then you get these ministers who, you know, I can't remember. One of them said, you know, during the cost of, beginning of the cost of living crisis earlier, I think late last year, that they just need to tighten their belt a bit further. Well, they probably don't own a belt. Um, they can't tighten their belt. So I, I think that the, 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 these things, it's sort of looking at people and saying, well, how the hell are you surviving given all of this? So greater understanding of what it's like less judgmental so another thing is non non-judgmental practice another one is trauma-informed practice um, and that's a big one um, because trauma affects people and if anyone's a psychologist they understand this it affects people's memory it affects their socialization it affects their anger levels it causes memory blockages it causes um, people to not want to face things that's the impact of trauma it's actually cognitive and understanding these things. So strength-based approach, trauma-informed, cultural um, awareness and competency, and these are all the things that should underpin it. Now, I talk about client care models in the book, and I want to be really clear to any um, legal academics or lawyers listening to this program, I don't mean the narrow model of client care that operates in the UK. I've learned, and it was actually a um, head of a nursing school who said that your idea as a lawyer of client care is completely different to ours. I wasn't talking about the lawyer-client care model because I come from a public health model. Um, but client care in the UK is seen as um, managing risk so it's your client care letter is about your costs and, and 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 explaining the procedure. That's not client care in the model that I'm talking about. It's about actually about caring for the client. It's about understanding and making central that notion of the duty of care in the sense of doing no harm, involving and engaging the client in their own matter, checking in with them, making sure they understand what's going on, um, not assuming things, not judging them. So that's all one model. And then that's the model for the lawyer, for the judge, for the tribunal member. And that requires them to be competent in a whole range of other areas other than narrow technical law and the, the you know, the interpretation of Section 65 of some Act. Then on top of that are a range of models which um, have been now been evaluated and the evidence is showing that they have an impact on people's lives with positive outcomes, not only legal outcomes, but uh, avoiding relapse, preventing suicidal ideation, preventing high levels of stress and anxiety and giving hope. And so some of these models are difficult to do and they have to be done well. I want to preface it. And in the book, in my chapters, I talk about how to do it well. And I have um, a chapter specifically focusing on the ethical workarounds that could be done to um, not compromise anyone's professional ethical obligations. But using this client-centred, trauma-informed, strength-based approach, and that's all in the book. So the models that come out of that is 
Um, so the research tells us people will people don't know how to identify a legal problem and they're more likely to disclose a problem to a trusted friend or trusted health or allied friend, professional. If they disclose to a trusted friend, the problem that we have is that often that trusted friend does not know what solutions are out there and may give them a bum steer, excuse the expression, very Australian expression, a bad steer, um, an ill-informed steer. Based on anecdote and what they've heard, oh, no, you won't want to do that, that won't work, blah, blah, blah. What you want is that trusted friend to say, I have a really great GP, I have a really great counsellor, there's a person down at the food bank who I trust, why don't you go and have a yarn or chat to them? And then if that's the, and we know from the research that these are the professionals, it's the podiatrist, it's the physiotherapist, um, these are the people that people are likely to disclose their range of problems to. And so if the health or allied health or social service can work collaboratively and alongside justice agencies and they work alongside each other and they work together, mindful of different professional but if your focus is on strength-based client care, human-centred approaches, client-centred approaches, what happens is the professional barriers fall away because the focus tends to be on the individual and then they work together. But there is that issue I talked about earlier of you have to build trust. And so it takes time. So professional development, working out, these are busy practitioners with huge caseloads as well. So what's the best way in which the lawyers can help them build their legal literacy and capability that works for them in their model? It can work in a hospital. It can work in a community health setting. It can work in youth youth areas. It can work in schools for disadvantaged kids. We've seen... Um, uh, justice lawyers working in an embedded school, working with young mums in early childhood care with young mums in that group. And then they can get in early on care and protection and get their, them not being cut off from the utility bills and get them out of debts that they don't owe or get them um, money payment plans or protect them early from family of violence and domestic abuse or coercive control behaviours. So... Um, I've got multiple examples in the book of how these these agencies working together can actually work to actually make real shifts and changes. And then the professionals um, using something called secondary consultations where the lawyer just gives them quick quick insight or advice on the legal um, navigation, how they can navigate their way through the legal system or wh whether it's a yes or a no or a maybe, they can then use that information with not only the initial client, but it flows downstream. So we started. I started measuring not only the value of one secondary consultation, but how many times that staff or their team had used that for other patients or clients downstream. And so with the austere nature of legal service delivery, that secondary consultation had an incredible flow-on effect. In one example, the woman said, I would have heard in the last six months, 60 of my people with that, knowing that. And these are professionals, so they know to check in with the lawyers to see if it's correct or whatever. Um, so that's another example, the use of secondary consultation, a multidisciplinary practice. Um, and there is a lot of mantra around health justice partnerships, but the, my model is the lawyers need to go to wherever the people are likely to turn to for help. So if it's the Salvation Army, they should be there. If it's the food bank. Now, another program that I evaluated, which isn't in the book, was in the UK. It was a navigator service for Hammersmith Fulham Legal Law Centre. That was funded for six months. And at five months before the evaluation report and before all the interview data was gathered and a report was written, that project was defunded because they said it didn't show enough impact in, in the time it was running. Now, that sort of model of funding is problematic. So there's got to be a shift in the decision-making and funding understanding of that making an impact takes time. 
how do you demonstrate that unless you're prepared to fund this sort of research? And that's where also there's a deficiency. So I'm a big believer in evidence-based policy, informing and shaping policy, rather than ideology and just movement of money around. Because at the end of the day, it goes back to your point, Jane, about accountability um, and trust. So sort of what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are these massive gaps in funding, in understanding, in client care, um, in sort of attention and regard for the individual. Um, But I can also understand that I think some of these gaps flow perhaps from the system of legal education that we inherited and we're working in. Perhaps you can tell me a bit more about this and what shifts we could you know, make in legal education so that down the road, you know, there is this some sort of a shift in discourse. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that universities um, are already doing in the UK and in Australia but could do more of is um, working alongside community organisations in a reciprocal, respectful way to run clinical programs so that students actually, uh, not just students going into a place, you know, doing a bit of work here and there on a file. Um, this is not about employability. I'm not talking about employability. You know, all right, you know, we get a light touch, you go in, you go out. But giving students what can be a transformational experience. Now, I've run clinical programs myself and I've watched and witnessed um the absolute transformation of students interviewing a client and go, oh my goodness, I have no idea that this is what I've always just thought, you know, like for instance, a criminal law client, classic example. I've just assumed that everybody who's charged by the police was guilty and I've never had time for them. And I've just spent 45 minutes talking to this man with a cognitive intellectual disability, who's got capacity by the way. Um, And this is outrageous. That, that moment where the students actually meet the real person behind the legal problem. So clinical opportunities. The second thing, it comes from that point. Instead of writing esoteric legal problems that the student has to um, respond to in a tutorial, actually grounding it some way, going from, all right, here's your legal problem. We're going to get you to interview a client. We're going to do role play. And giving scripts, I've done this when I've taught, where you've actually got scripts for this half the students become clients, the other half are the lawyers, and then you get the students to, you know, so you'll get a Mars bar if you can pull off an Academy Award, genuine, authentic performance. And it, the actual facts for the problem come from the client interview. And then the next phase is they're working on that client problem to work out if it's a contract problem, if there's formation of contract, all those other things. So you can actually embed, rather than just providing them, with the problem you can actually create a course where it builds on each other and they understand that the problem comes from a real life i think problem-based learning is really good a number of universities in the uk are moving to that um, because unfortunately the way our legal aid system works in the uk is it's fragmented and siloed into problem types but um, i think that at university we need to acknowledge that Things don't come in just contract or tort or a trust. You have a client can have all three um, so that there's opportunity and professional, um, absolutely professional ethics, legal ethics need to be taught across uh, the curriculum more. Um, and I think it should be mandatory. Um, anyone who's going to practice law should be required to do it proper um, uh uh, legal ethics, and I think giving voice to values. Uh, the wonderful Mary Jean Tilly at Darden in the USA has developed, and I've taught it to nursing students and law students, and I talk about it in the book. Giving voice to values is where you actually give an ethical dilemma to a student, and they have to act on it, and they have to learn ways as which to speak to power to try and get the right ethical outcome by using compelling um, uh, arguments based in the evidence, based in the law but also thinking or preempting how the naysayers will respond so that they can preempt those really good um, skills also in advocacy if you've got a judge that you're talking to. Um, so I think that the legal academy, um, I think that we're, we're to do 
this sort of thing, I think you'd find a lot more academics were energised, but I can certainly tell you that my students love it. I had an email overnight from a colleague of mine at, when I first worked at my first university when I was a clinical supervisor at West Heidelberg saying that at the 30th anniversary or 50th anniversary, I can't remember how long, uh, La Trobe University Law School, I think it's 30, uh, a thing last night, one of the students, the former alumni who's now fairly big in a private law firm that does a lot of pro bono work in Australia, got up and said that he found um, he wanted to acknowledge my role as his clinical supervisor as transformative. So he said that last night or uh, at an event. And I think this is the thing. I think that if you can give students, uh, I've written about, you know, social justice can make the law come alive. I think it gives the students some relevance. I mean, it shouldn't take until final year law that, that you start to see what the relevance of the law degree is. Um, so I think there's a huge role. I think academics can also get involved in law reform and policy, using their research, their evidence base to fill the gap that exists in uh, proper policy, evidence-based decision-making. I'm trying at NTU to support my colleagues as the school impact research lead to actually use their research in policy, in House of Lords committees and other committees um, of inquiry so that you know, decision-making is not just based on, uh, you know, people's opinion, but there is actually a grounded evidence base from the lived narrative to turn the hearts so that the minds will follow, as I said earlier. Yeah, I mean, honestly, after hearing that, I wish I was in one of your classes. It just sounds so um, enriching and empowering. And, um, and I think that's so important, trying to get law students to understand, you know, the responsibility that they're taking on, that these really are real people behind the legal problems. Mm, absolutely. So the final part of the book is about reflective practice. Um, and I just want to take a minute to discuss this. So can you tell me the importance of reflective practice and how can this be framed and evaluated from an ethical perspective? Um, when I first started doing evaluative work, particularly with lawyers, one, it was one lawyer said it, but then it was repeated by multiple um, what would a client know about whether or not they're getting a good legal service because they don't understand the law? So there was a resistance to evaluation and reflective practice. And what I said to that lawyer is that I wasn't evaluating the effectiveness of their legal advice. What I was looking at was the client's experience of the legal service that they received. And that I thought clients had a fairly good idea in understanding whether they'd been listened to and heard, whether they understood the language that was being used, whether they felt they were being judged, whether or not they were given an opportunity to ask questions, uh, answer or comment or clarify. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting thing. And I think that the nature of, goes back to your question earlier, Jane, the nature of how law is taught in university is that it's it's pretty black and white, um, that because the client is not there present often, it's, you know, it's all about case law and statu statutes. And the thing is, central, goes back to my first thing when we were discussing this earlier, is the law should be about the community the law is there to protect and adhere. The rule of law is about equality before the law. And we're missing that piece in the puzzle, which is about the community and the client. So um, what we need, if we are good at whatever we do, whether it be as a practitioner, as a judge, as um, a health worker, uh, and I get this largely from the health sector again, particularly public health, um, and as educators or academics, even in our research approaches, we need to be constantly thinking about what works well, what doesn't work so well, and what could I do differently and how do I find out the way that I can do it differently? What do I need to do? So all my research and my evaluation is done in what I call a participatory approach with a continuous learning, development, uh, reflection and improvement model. And that is the thing. Everything I do, I learned this really from my work with Aboriginal communities as a junior lawyer in the 90s. Um, 
everything I do, I have to think about, could I do it better? What worked? And the only way you can do that often is through a 360 way of trying to find out the answers to those questions. And that may be asking the students, something didn't work today, can you tell me what? What do I need to do to improve? Um, and often, like I, I had a, a startling moment, which has been the subject of nightmares for 30 years, and it happened when I first came to NTU. And I couldn't work out what was going wrong. And I just thought, I'm just going to do my reflective practice. I just stopped the class and I said, look, something's not working here. Can you tell me what, what's going on? How can I? And you know what the answer was? We're tired. It's six o'clock. We started at nine. We're used to being in high school. We're exhausted. It's got nothing to do with you, Liz, and what you're doing. We're just exhausted. And so I said, all right, then. Let's just all put our heads on the desk and let's take 15 minutes and just have a nap. And then I'll go for another half hour. And then you can go. And then what I'm going to do is recalibrate these 6 p.m. classes on, a, I can't think it was Tuesday or something. But they had just had a long day. But I then I then thought about that. And I thought about all these poor things that just arrived in a new city. They're in halls of residence. They were scared of COVID. All of these things are going on in their lives. And I just thought, I need to completely recalibrate what I do. Think about the time of day. Um, just like I did with my clients when I when I was a practitioner, I learned from health professionals, and this is again goes back to multidisciplinary practice and the reciprocal learning. I learned, you know, if clients weren't showing up to their morning appointments, and I had a mental health practitioner say to me, "Well, that's because those particular clients are on psychotropic medication, and they can't even get out of bed in the morning. So just shift your appointments to the afternoon, and they'll turn up to appointments." Bingo. So this is this sort of reflective practice means if we don't ask the questions of ourselves, we don't actually find out the answer. And I guess that's the message of the whole book is that we, we're not perfect, none of us are, and we can all learn. And if we inv investigate and find out and do it in a respectful manner, we can be more responsive and more effective. And I think if the legal system could do a little bit more of that, then I think we'd see different outcomes um, for people with legal problems. And of course, legal problems, if they're resolved, can help people with their housing, their health, their uh, educational attainment, um, as I said, their stress, their anxiety and their hope levels. So we can actually really st start to make a difference. And this book is about starting the dialogue and getting people to reflect and to think differently and to evaluate and gather evidence and then to change how we fund things, how we structure things. Um, I think the um, the legal the, the provision of legal services in the UK needs a really serious rethink. And we are currently working with a fragmented, siloed, problematic model. Um, and I think with a little bit more reflective practice. Um, we could improve it. We could make it a really good system and we could divert funds to the people who need it the most. Yeah, and I mean, that's such a brilliant takeaway to sort of conclude on, this idea of ongoing reflective practice and building on that, you know, moving forward and to sort of challenge the siloed approach to law and legal education and legal problems to really centre sort of the individual um, and, you know, take this approach of, um, like meaningful client care, um, I suppose. So, Dr. Liz Curran, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, our traditional last question for the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? Oh, um, I think picking up on what I just said, what I'm hoping to do is to use the evidence base from my research in the UK to shape and inform particularly civil legal aid service delivery in the UK. Um, I think the I'm working closely with law centres network and law centres um, because they do amazing work with very limited funds, but I'm trying to work out what model might what, what the evidence says about the sort of model that can make a more responsive civil legal aid service um, industry in the UK. I hate that word industry, it's not an industry. Um, 
Uh, there is currently a civil legal aid review in the UK that has been announced and I'm hoping to be able to use research to shape and inform that. At the moment, it's very narrow. It's about cost cutting and economics. I want to broaden it to about being a really responsive uh, civil legal aid system to help people and to have a huge impact on people's lives and outcome. I think that's possible. I know it's possible. I've seen it in my research. It's just that we need to uh, make sure that people are listening and hearing the evidence. The other area I'm concerned about, which I've been involved in in recent times because of the evidence base in Australia, and I'm working on this at the moment, is again, as a, I guess a case study, is the stop the boats policy of the UK government. Um, the, the Stop the Boats has been a failed policy in Australia. There is evidence from the University of New South Wales. There is data on the cost of detaining people and the use of private providers in Australia with Serco and there's an SBS report and some other data on problems with the way uh, that detention centre operates. That is going to cost the UK government a hell of a lot of money. That is money that might be actually better spent on education, cost of living and NHS. Um, so it's inefficient, ineffective. The evidence say it's a failed policy. It doesn't stop the boats. It causes a lot of harm, particularly to children, a developmental long-term harm, mental health, suicide, um, self-harm, um, costs a lot of money with very little to show for it. It demonises um, minority groups and it ignores the actual problem that causes flight, which is a well-found fear of persecution. And any of us that were born in another country by accident of birth would actually be probably doing exactly what these people are. Uh, people seeking asylum and refugee status, it's not the mode of travel, it's the fleeing that's the point. Um, and so I, what I want to see is the evidence base that has built, been built in Australia from decades of this failed policy. I want to see that the actual evidence base is shared with the UK and that they can learn. Already we have the esteemed senior lawyers say it's unlawful, like robo-debt, which I mentioned earlier. The harm that can be caused by following an unlawful policy and just saying it might be unlawful, but we're going ahead with it anyway, is really poor practice. It's bad law. It's poor law. And the evidence says it's a law that's not even going to do what it promises. It might get them over the line and make them, you know, appeal to people who are racist, um, so that they might win an election. But in the end, it will leave the UK taxpayer with a huge amount of money being spent on private providers of detention onshore and offshore in the UK, cause harm. And furthermore, that's money that could be better spent on actually uh, improving our health system, our education system and the cost of living and the lives of people living in poverty. So that's the areas of work that I want to be working on into the future. Well, I'll certainly look forward to reading all of that. It sounds very pressing and urgent. Um, so, yeah, do let me know when that comes out. Um, just to wrap it up, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr Liz Curran about her latest book, Better Law for a Better World, New Approaches to Law, Practice and Education. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network.